Hi, I'm David Goforth, pastor at Grace Baptist Church. So glad that you're taking the time to listen to this podcast. And I want to let you know we're here to help you. If you have any questions, please visit our website, gbcwc.org. Contact us. We'd love to help. Amen. Thank you, folks. Judges. We're in Judges chapter 8 as we continue our study of the book of Judges. And hopefully you are learning some of the different ways to study and to learn for yourself from the book of Judges. Let me remind you, basically, how we treat the historical narrative is we look at how does it reveal the theological message of the Bible? Where does it fit in the theological message that helps us interpret different things? And what does it teach us about man, the depravity factor of man, and what's revealed about redemption? That is the main thing that Judges reveals, and it's just showing a lot of different ways that that is revealed within this book. Primarily, most of the stories are going to focus in on questions two and three. Basically, what does this reveal about God and his relationship with the people? Now, we're going to try to... We're going to try to cover two whole chapters today. And when we get through those two chapters, God's not going to be mentioned until the very end. Uh, but you're going to realize, that, hey, he is the center of the story and different things are going on. And then the last one is what warning or encouragement does this give? And you'll see, uh, you'll see a, a direction here that is happening with the children of Israel that often happens within our lives as well. Now, we have been talking about how Gideon reveals different things in our relationship with Christ. And the first thing we saw last week was how God sometimes has to whittle our army down to prove, to teach to us the reality that we have to depend on him. Well, that's what we learned last week. Well, now we're going to pick up kind of in the middle of the battle. The battle has pretty much been uh, won. The Midianites have been run off. But now Gideon and his army is continuing to pursue uh, the Midianites to force the battle and to really get a good victory in. And we're going to pick that up right in chapter 8. So if you have your Bibles, open them up to Judges 8. We'll start in verse 1. Now, we're not going to have time to read all of the passage. There's a number of verses uh, that we're going to be going through. Some we'll, we'll, we'll lay out for you. Some will just tell you what happened. You can go back and study a little bit more a little bit later on. But look there at verse 1. It says, The men of Ephraim said to him, Why hast thou served us thus, and called us not when thou wentest to fight with the Midianites? And they did chide with him sharply. That's a very nice way of saying they really got all over Gideon. So this is immediately after this wonderful victory has been realized. The Midianites are spread out. They're running. The the people of Ephraim, Ephraim was a large, wealthy tribe in Israel. They said, how come come we didn't get a chance? Why why, why didn't we get a building named after us? What's the problem with? They just were getting really upset by it. And Gideon comes back. And listen to what he says, verse 2. What have I done now in comparison of you? Is not the gleaning of the grapes of Ephraim better than the vintage of Abiezer? God hath delivered into your hands the princes of Midian, Oreb, and Zeb. What was I able to do in comparison of you? Then their anger was abated. Basically, what Gideon said was, hey, you guys killed the kings. You guys killed the rulers. You, you, you did a big deal. You really did. He just kind of assuaged, he just kind of let them soak in the, or bask in uh, the wonder of them being able to kill the leaders of the Midianites. And he is very kind to them. Now look what happens though, as he continues to battle in verse four. And Gideon came to Jordan, passed over he and the 300 men that were with him, faint yet pursuing them. Means they were tired, but they were still going after him. And they said unto the men of Succoth, give, I pray ye loaves of bread unto the people that follow me. For they be faint, and I am pursuing after Zeba and Zalmunna, kings of Midian. So as he's going, now Ephraim, these are the leaders of Ephraim, a rather big, wealthy tribe. Now we're, we're kind of leaving this big, wealthy tribe, but now we're getting into some of the small towns. Maybe uh, the, 
uh, not even cities, more, more like just suburbs, and not even suburbs, and more like just little hamlets of things. Uh, the two different things we're going to look at, Succoth and Penuel, and these are just a small little group of people. They stop by and say, hey, could you give us some food? We're, we're tired. We've been chasing these folks. And the, and the men of Succoth and the men of Penuel both answer similarly. Look at verse 5. He says, um, or verse 6, the princes of Succoth said, are the hands of Zeba and Zalmunna now in thine hand that we should give bread unto thine army? Get what he is saying here. He's not say, they're not saying, well, I don't think it's a good idea. They're saying, listen, you, you may have them on the run, but you guys haven't won yet. And we're not going to get in trouble. And you, you have to a little bit understand that the men of Succoth, they're trying to protect their interests. They're saying, if we help you out and then you lose and it's found out that we helped you, then we're going to have to pay. The Midianites are going to come after us. And that, they basically were picking sides. They were telling Gideon, we don't think you're going to be able to finish them off. There's still a bunch left. We think that these folks are going to be able to pull it off. Um, Verse 7, Gideon said, therefore, when the Lord hath delivered Ziba and Zalmunna into mine hand, then I will tear your flesh with the thorns of the wilderness and with briars. So here's the first thing. Ephraim comes to him and says, hey, how come we weren't part of the battle? He goes, oh, man, you guys did a great job. We couldn't have done it without you. You you took out the kings. You took out the rulers. Good for you. The men of Succoth, he says, hey, can we we get some help? They said, well, we're not sure you're going to win. He basically says, when I win, I'm going to come back and I'm going to torture you. I'm going to take these, these thistles, these briars, I'm going to come back and I'm going to, I'm going to get after you. And verse 8, he went up thence to Penuel and spake unto them likewise. So he goes to the next little hamlet. Okay, so now he's left uh, Sandy Run and now he's headed to Gaston. And he stops and he says, hey, would you help us out? Says the same thing to Penuel. And the men of Penuel answered him as the men of Succoth answered him. So they said basically the same thing. And now we see what's happening with Gideon. Gideon is starting to get worn down. He's running past Ephraim. Have you ever told somebody that you're on your last nerve? Or have you ever lashed out at somebody and they just asked a question and you really didn't lash out because of what they asked. You lashed out because of what the 40 people before you, before them had asked. I see some of you nodding your heads in recognition. You know what I'm talking about, right? So Gideon goes through. Ephraim says, man, how can we were part of this? It's, it's okay, guys. It's all right. He goes to Succoth, hey, can you help us? Well, you're not going to win. You know what? I'm coming back, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to mess with you. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tear you up with those thorns. Then he goes to Penuel, and Penuel says, nope, you're not going to win. Now look at his answer. Verse 9, he spake to the men of Penuel, saying, when I come again in peace, I'll break down this tower. Gideon's starting to get, we don't see him interacting with the Lord. We don't see him stopping all up until this point. He has all of these different conversations with the Lord. Gideon just thinks, hey, he can go to God. And he, he, doesn't, he doesn't do it here. He just starts breaking off into his own, his own path. Now we'll go down to verse 13. We'll skip down to verse 13. And Gideon, the son of Joash, returned from battle before the sun was up. He defeated him. He won. Okay, so he comes back and he caught a young man of the men of Succoth and inquired of him and described unto him the princes of Succoth and the elders thereof, even threescore seventeen men. Okay, so the seventy-seven men, he says, he's, these are who the elders of Succoth are. And then he took the elders of the city, verse 16, and thorns of the wilderness and briars. And the Bible is very diplomatic how it says it here. And with them he taught the men of Succoth. Okay. Uh, he did not take the briars and thorns and, and turn them into a flannel graph story for the kids, okay? What did he do? He tortured them. 
He, he took these things and, and he tortured them. And then, verse 17, he beat down the tower of Penuel and slew the men of the city. Now Gideon has, I mean, we can tell, Gideon's no longer following the direction of the Lord. Now Gideon, he's kind of, I don't know, full of himself maybe? Would that be the right way to say that? Where he's just kind of, okay, now he's starting to believe the press that God told him. You mighty man of valor. Remember the first time Gideon heard that? Where was he? Hiding, threshing wheat, right? And, and God says, you, you mighty man of valor. And Gideon's like, who me? And now Gideon's like, you know what? If you don't help me, I'm a whoop you. And then he comes back and says, well, I'm not sick of whoop. You know what? I'm going to kill you guys. Just this unbelievably, uh, the, the, the ferocity is growing here in Gideon. Look down at verse 20. And you have to stop and think about that, Okay. The progression shows us that Gideon is not doing things purposefully. Gideon is reacting. Gideon is just doing whatever he wants. And he, for some people, he teaches with briars. With other people, he murders them for the same thing. And then you have Ephraim, who he doesn't even mess with, because Ephraim, and you can kind of look at that and say, well, hey, well, Ephraim, they're kind of a big deal. You're, you don't want to mess with them. And so we see that Gideon has kind of left the path of following Christ, and it's just going to get, or following the Lord, it's just going to get worse. Look at verse 20. He sent unto Jether his firstborn up and slay them, but the youth drew not his sword, for he feared because he was yet a youth. Now there's two things you need to get from this verse. One is that he, he looks at his son, he says, son, you need to go ahead and kill these folks. And because he told them before, he said, if you guys would have been fair to the people that you captured, I would be fair to you now. But because you killed them, we're killing you. And then he looked at his boy and he said, son, kill him. All right? This tells us a couple things. One thing it tells us that Gideon was already married, already had a wife. Now, what was normal in Israel? How many wives would the normal Israelite have? Anyone? One. That's routine. That's normal. And this shows up. Not only did he already have a wife, but he already had a wife and a family. And this is going to come up big later on in the story. Um, he said, up and slay them. But the youth drew not his sword, for he feared because he was yet a youth. Okay. This is dad putting a young person in a very difficult situation. This is not the heat of battle. This is not we're going down to fight. This is dad after the battle and after the people have been captured saying, all right, you're going to die because of what you did. Son, go ahead and kill them. The son's never killed anything before. And he's like, uh, and, and the two kings are, are tired of it. Ziba and Zalmunna, verse 21, said, rise thou, fall on us, for as the man is, so is his strength. Kind of getting after Gideon, kind of making fun of his boy a little bit. And Gideon arose and slew Zeba and Zalmunna and took away the ornaments that were on the camel's necks. So Gideon hacks them himself. Now, again, you're looking at this. You're saying, okay, what does this reveal about God? What does this reveal about the theological message? What does this reveal? What lessons can we learn from this? What we see here is we see an individual who is enjoying the blessing of God and very quickly letting his heart turn away from God. Now, he's going to make a good choice here. He's going to give verbal assent to some things that he knows about God. But his life is not going to back it up, and we're going to see something. And this is, we talked Sunday night about how in parenting, we as parents are responsible for the decisions that we make and how we parent our children, but our children are responsible for the choices that they make. And that is very, very true. You, you do not have to answer for the choices of your children. However, you have to realize that sin has its own agenda. 
the machinations of sin, the, the things that happen just because there is sin in the house. It, it's kind of like, you know, water. What's one of the things that I, when I first became a homeowner and realized, I think one of the very first things that happened is we had a little leak on our ice maker line to our fridge. And that little leak from the ice maker line in the fridge leaked down the ice maker line. There was a little cut in the linoleum or probably vinyl is what it actually was. And it leaked underneath the vinyl and, it, and it, that water was leaking slowly. And it was leaking slow enough to where we didn't know it was leaking. There wasn't any water on the floor or anything like that. All it did was completely soak the underside of our house and the underside of our kitchen and rotted out all of the wood and everything under there. And it was a massive construction thing that had to be redone to get all that put together because water was very, very dangerous. And we didn't realize how dangerous it was, what the problem was. And, and what you're looking at is that what water gets in, water has its own plan when it, it tries to find whatever, it lets stuff grow, it rots stuff, it just has all kinds of other things that it brings along with it. And that's what sin is. God doesn't judge you necessarily or judge your children, but if you introduce sin into your family and you introduce the flesh into your family, there it brings its own curse. It brings its own difficulties. And you're going to see this in the next couple of chapters here. Okay, Look at verse uh, 22. The men of Gideon, the men of Israel said to Gideon, Rule thou over us, both thou and thy son, and thy son's son also, for thou hast delivered us from the hand of Midian. They were asking Gideon, Gideon, will you be our king? Now Gideon makes a very smart answer here. Gideon said unto them, I will not rule over you, neither shall my son rule over you. The Lord shall rule over you. Is that the right thing to say? Absolutely. God said, you don't need a king. I'm going to rule over you personally. So Gideon had the right theological answer. But when you look at what he does in the next few verses, you wonder if he was just paying lip service or if he actually said, hey, God's got to do this. Look at verse 24. Gideon said unto them, I would desire a request of you. Now, in our culture, this is going to be a strange request. So let me explain it to you. It said that ye would give me every man the earrings of his prey. In ancient battles, when you fought and you won, you got the spoils of victory. And the spoils of victory many times were literally the things that you would take from the people that you fought. And so Gideon Right after they came and said, we want you to be our king and your son be our king, your son's sons. We want you to rule over us forever. They were so excited and Gideon said, no, 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 I'm not going to be a king. But you know what? I would like to have everybody's spoils from this battle. Now think about this for a second. Do you remember how many Midianites there were? Numbered as the sand of the seashore. And Gideon doesn't say, I'd like a certain amount. Gideon says, why don't you just give me, why don't you just give me the rings? Now, not everybody would have had a ring, okay? Just like everybody here doesn't have necessarily a gold ring or a gold necklace. There are some folks in here, you've got a significant amount of bling that you wear all of the time. Others of you, you have bling that uh, is not worth any bling. Um, it's not, it's just uh, cosmetic, what do they call that? Costume, costume jewelry. It looks pretty, uh, but it, it's not worth anything, uh, but there are other folks you have very, very nice things that you wear. And that's been that way uh, forever. If the family had more money, they would have more things that they would have on them. And they would many times wear their wealth. And so Gideon says, let me just have the spoils of war. This was very, very rarely heard of back then. 
People did not take all of the spoils. Leaders shared the spoils. But he said, let me have all the spoils. For they had golden earrings because they were Ishmaelites. Verse 25. And they answered, we will willingly give them. And they spread a garment and did cast therein every man the earrings of his prey. Now, going back archaeologically and trying to look at some of the different things that we found, these gold earrings would have been probably not more than half an ounce a person uh, per earring. And it would not have necessarily been an earring. It could have been a ring in the nose and different things. They said, we'll really give you that. And so it said the weight of the golden earrings that he requested was 1,700 shekels of gold, okay? Which means nothing to us. It's about 75 pounds of gold. So about 75 pounds of gold. Uh, This means there were a significant number of people that came by and dropped this in. But that's not it. The 75 pounds of gold, beside ornaments and collars and purple raiment that was on the kings of Midian, beside the chains that were about the camel's necks. See, so Gideon grabbed the chains off of Ziba and Zalmunna. It says that, says Gideon hacked them, and then Gideon took the chains off the camel's neck. So there was a big heavy gold chain on there. So Gideon took all of this. He takes all of the spoils. That's kind of a kingly thing to do. He says, I'm not going to be a king. I'm just going to act like a king. Okay. Now, if you're curious what that would be, you could probably look it up. 75, 80 pounds of gold, somewhere around $2 million. It's not an unbelievable amount, but it was an unbelievable amount. But Gideon before, remember, he was not a big deal. His dad had to defend him. So it's not like Gideon was already halfway on the way to winning friends and influencing people. And he just happened upon this. Gideon was a big nobody. And now he goes to the richest fella around. You know, the the lives of the rich and famous. So they gave him to him. And Gideon gets all of this. Now, even though he outwardly rejected being a king, look at verse 27. Gideon made an ephod thereof. Do you remember what the ephod was? The ephod was the priestly garment. It was something that was supposed to be worn by the priests. And and the Bible says, hey, the, the, the people of Levi, they're the only ones that are supposed to be wearing this ephod. But Gideon makes an ephod. Now, we don't know if he uses all the gold for the ephod, and I don't think he does, because something else tells us where Gideon spent his money. And this, I don't want to be, this isn't humorous. It is kind of humorous if you, if you want to make it that, but Gideon starts playing the rich guy right away, okay? He made the ephod, put it in the city, even Ophrah, so he puts it in his city, makes his city a big deal, And then all of the people quit going to worship at the tabernacle, and now they start coming to Ophrah. And all Israel went thither a whoring after it, which thing became a snare unto Gideon and to his house. Now think about this. What was the very first act that Gideon did? He cut down the idol, the altar, the grove that was in his town. See, his town had a grove where they were trying to worship God their way. And now Gideon made an ephod and the entire nation of Israel was now coming where they weren't supposed to go to worship. That's why the Bible says they went whoring after it. They went, they started worshiping it as that was the big deal. That's made of the gold of all the gold that we pulled off. That's how many Midianites we killed. See, that would have been a physical representation of the great battle, the great glory. I remember when I was a a kid driving around, when you would go through downtown Detroit, there would be car factories that out in front of the car factories were World War II vehicles. And as a little kid, I, I always thought it was weird that they would have this old beat-up vehicle out there, planes and tanks and different things. Then I realized what it was. They were proudly 
proclaiming, this is what we did for World War II. We made these tanks. We made these Jeeps. We made these airplanes. We made these things. This is, this is where the war was won. They didn't want anybody to forget about it. And this ephod became something that was worshipped. So Gideon put a lot of his money into the ephod. But I want you to look down at verse 30. We're going to see where Gideon put the rest of this gold to use. And Gideon had three score and ten sons of his body begotten. Now, if you just read that, you'd feel sorry for Miss Gideon, right? You'd think this woman must have had numerous quadruplets and octuplets. How in the world? Well, then it tells us, for he had many wives. One of the ways in the ancient world that you showed off your wealth was by maintaining a large household. So Gideon, now remember, he already had a wife. He already had at least a child. He goes and he wins this great victory. They come to him and say, hey, we want you to be our king. No, I'm not going to be your king. And then he starts living like a king. Puts an ephod up. People come and start worshiping it. And then he starts collecting wives. So many wives that he goes from one son to 70. And you say, well, you know, things were different back then. No, Gideon absolutely was living in the flesh. And on top of that, look at verse 31. And his concubine that was in Shechem. Because many wives and 70 kids obviously isn't enough. This is a picture of how Gideon is just doing whatever is right in his eyes. So God comes to him, Gideon sees, Gideon says some of the different, he gives lip service to the, to the folks saying, no, I'm not ever going to be your king. And then he absolutely begins living like a king. Go back up to verse 28. The Bible says, thus was Midian subdued before the children of Israel so that they lifted up their heads no more. And the country was in quietness 40 years in the days of Gideon. Now I want you to see God is still being portrayed here. Gideon is not being blessed for 40 years because of the wonderful things that Gideon is doing. Gideon is breaking numerous Old Testament commands. He's got people coming to his neighborhood and worshiping. He's got many wives and then he leaves and goes to Shechem and, and stays with his concubine in Shechem. She had a son whose name was Abimelech. Now, why is, why is that important talking about Shechem? Because Gideon not only was taking many wives of the children of Israel, but then he also went outside of the children of Israel for this concubine. Gideon is absolutely living his life. Now, look at verse 34. We're going to look at the legacy of Gideon. The children of Israel remembered not the Lord their God who had delivered them out of the hands of all their enemies on every side. You see how Gideon started fighting against himself? Why did Gideon see such a big battle? Why did he see such an incredible victory? It wasn't because of all the wonderful things that Gideon did. But as soon as he got into an easy part of life, he started rolling with all of the, all of the gold and all of the advantages that he could take care of. And he started taking it in. And then the children of Israel forgot the Lord. But they didn't just forget the Lord. Look at verse 35. Neither showed they kindness to the house of Jeroboam, namely Gideon, according to all the goodness which he had shown unto Israel. Now Gideon hacked down the original altar of Baal there in Ophrah, and then of course he hacked up the kings. In fact, his name Gideon, it kind of makes kind of a reference to the hacking. But did you know that outside of the book of Judges, when scripture refers to Gideon, he is most often referred to by his pagan name, Jeroboam. Baal will contend with him. He's not remembered as Gideon. Now we have Gideon's, the folks that put Bibles in places, it's not the sword of the Lord and of Jeroboam 
We refer to him as Gideon, but Scripture is referred to him most often as Jeroboam. And Gideon set this legacy of living for yourself. So he goes from, and this is what I want you to see, it's not that Gideon made his family sin. It's that Gideon placed the system of sin as the dominating ruling factor. You do what you want to do. So Gideon saw this wonderful victory and started collecting wives. Started collecting wives. And then couldn't even get enough wives. He had to leave Israel and go to the Canaanites and and get a concubine in Shechem. And this wonderful thing that we talk about, and here's the amazing thing. God God is still there. God is still working, but he's, he's going to let sin work out. And basically what you're going to see here is because of Gideon, Gideon up to this point sees the greatest victory, but then this is where we see the problems in Israel shift from what is outside to what is inside. Now before we go to verse to chapter 9, let's just look at a couple of things, okay? Gideon talked with God frequently in the beginning of his story. Yes, God came to him and said, I want you to fight the Midianites. And then Gideon said, hey, I want to talk to you about this. And then Gideon went back to him again and said, hey, how about this fleece? And how am I going to do this? We have Gideon, and that is a type of prayer. We have all of this prayer, all these things going on. And it's important to pray for needs. And I don't think anybody in here has a problem with praying for needs. I've never met a Christian who forgot to pray over a need. When needs show up, that's when we start going, oh, Lord, I need you. That's not the time. The difficulty was when the ease came in. And see, we don't need to pray because our nation is falling apart. We don't need to pray because life is giving us a difficult time. We need to pray because we need to pray. We need to convince ourselves that we cannot operate independently of God. And yet so many of us are just like Gideon in the fact that when we start doing and we start going, we do start operating independently of God. And Gideon did that. It appears that Gideon literally did that for the majority of his life. In fact, if you look at the story of Gideon's life, from the time that God came to him till the time that the Midianite was over and he made the ephod going against God's will, you have such a small window. You've got 40 years where he's amassing wives and training his children to be wicked. And you have just a small window. And yet God is gracious to Gideon through that. And he shows Gideon. That show, tells us a lot, about, a lot about Gideon. But it also tells us that, listen, we need to be on guard. Some of us are still living in a time of blessing. And I want you to see this. This is not, this is not something that you can guarantee and say for every, each and every person in here. But realize that it is entirely possible that this could be the generation of churches and the generations of Christians in America that are enjoying the fruit of what the generation before us did. But we're not living in independence with God in dependence we are independent of god it's entirely possible and one of the scariest things that i see as a pastor is that so many folks that are relying on the lord god is the last cause not the first cause god is the last person to go to not the first person to go to and we see that gideon has set his family up for defeat not because they're going to pay for gideon's sin but because they learned the choices of sin and now they are rolling in that sin Look back at verse 30, it says, or verse 31, his concubine that was in Shechem also bare him a son whose name he called Abimelech. You know what Abimelech means? 
father the king. So Gideon had a kid in Shechem. He wasn't trying to hide the fact that he had this concubine in Shechem. He went to this Canaanite place, had a son, and named the son, my daddy is the king. That's Abimelech. Now look at chapter 9, verse 1. Judges 9, 1. We should have time to cover this. We won't, we won't read as much. We'll give you kind of the highlights. And Abimelech, the son of Jeroboam, went to Shechem unto his mother's brethren and communed with them, with all the family of the house of his mother's father, saying. So he went back to his people, and he said, so Abimelech, the guy whose name means my dad's the king, he goes to the Shechemites, and he basically says, hey, who do you want to rule over you? Do you want 70 Israelites who are Jeroboam's sons, or do you want another Shechemite who is one of Jeroboam's sons? Would you rather have one of us ruling or somebody else? And he talked to some people, and they went around and said, yeah, we'd like to have him. And so he did a little fundraiser. And they got him some money, and with this money, he hired thugs. And the Bible tells us that those thugs went and got all of the sons of Gideon, and this is a horrific scene, folks, brought them out to one stone and killed them all on one stone. So this was not some type of battle and fight where they were fighting against each other and it was fair. Somehow they captured them, they brought them out, and then one by one they hacked their heads off at this stone, except for one brother, Jotham, or Jotham. He hid, it says. He was the youngest of all of the sons. And so Jotham hides, he hides away, and then Jotham's going to come back to him a little bit later. So the Shechemites declare Abimelech king. They say, he's our king. And then Jotham comes to the Shechemites and he says, all right, and he, he, gave, he tells this little story. He says, the olive tree, uh, they, came, they went to the olive tree and said, be our king. And the olive tree said, I don't want to leave my wonderful olive, uh, olives alone. I'm, I'm going to stay here. Don't, don't bother me. So they went from the olive tree to the fig tree. And they said, the fig tree, would you be our king? And the fig tree said, no, I'm not, I'm not going to be the king. I, 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 wouldn't, I wouldn't want to leave my fig. So they left the fig and they went to the vine and said, vine, would you be our king? And the vine said, no, I don't want to leave the sweetness of my grapes to be your king. So then they went to the trash, <laughs> the bramble, the thistle. And they said, Thistle, will you be our king? And the thistle said, sure, I'll be your king. And then Jotham said, now, if that's what you did, if you went about it the right way and you asked all the people that should have been king and they all said no, then good for you. But if you did this surreptitiously, if you had evil in you, then I predict that this bramble is going to spit out fire and going to burn you all down. And then Jotham goes and he hides. So he basically shows up and he gives this... He, he, he gives this prophecy and says, if you've, if you've done right, wonderful. If you haven't done right, then great. And then Abimelech reigns for about three years. Abimelech reigns with the Shechemites. And then, again, you don't have outside people that are attacking them. And in fact, this could have been during the 40 years that they had rest during Gideon's time. Okay? Because when the Bible says it had 40 years of rest, Abimelech's not really judging, but he's the one that kind of takes over. And we get this story where Abimelech goes, he kills all of his brothers, has them murdered, then he becomes king. Then three years later, his own subjects start saying, you know, Abimelech's not that good of a king. We don't like Abimelech. And they start going around and saying, well, I think we could beat Abimelech. Then they have this big party and somebody hears them and they tell Abimelech saying, hey, they're talking about defeating you. So Abimelech collects some more people and they co- he comes to fight the people of Shechem. Shechem in the, in the meantime, they had been doing basically a type of guerrilla warfare. They've been fighting. They've gone through this guerrilla warfare. Abimelech comes, starts attacking him. And Abimelech comes in and starts murdering the people in the town of Shechem. His family. Okay? You have to understand, this isn't like the town of, of we've been kidding about Sandy Run and Gaston. But if you lived in Sandy Run or Gaston, it's not, it's not like that. 
Okay? It's kind of like, some of you may have been like, I noticed this a couple of times when we were on teen visitation, we would be on like Smith Street or Edwards Street or Jones Street, and we go to the first house and knock on it, and it would be Mr. and Mrs. Jones. And we go to the next house, and it would be Mr. and Mrs. Jones. And we go to the next house, and it would be Mr. and Mrs. Jones. And I thought, huh, that's kind of strange that all the Jones live on Jones Street. And then the last person said, yeah, this was my grandpa's farm, and he gave everybody a half an acre of land, and so this is all our family that live on Jones Street. So this is, that's what Shechem would have been like. They, they, all, they really were all as a close-knit group. They would have identified as a family, as a tribe. We use, maybe use that word. Now, there were a large number of them, but Abimelech comes back and starts murdering them. Not just the men who are making war. He's murdering people in the field. And then, do you remember what Jotham said he would do? That the bramble would spit out fire? Well, the warriors and the leaders of Shechem, they go to the tower. And Abimelech goes and he gets a piece of wood and he tells all of his people and his army, everybody grab a piece of wood. And they grab all the wood and they go and they stack it. And they literally burn the people and cook the people to death. And this, this comes true. And then he goes and he goes to fight against the next town. And so he's going to fight against the next town and he's going to do the same thing. And then the Bible says that there was a lady that was also in this tower because the whole town had gone to this tower. To, for the, it was kind of like the keep. The, the last place, the last place of defense to try to keep people out. They'd all gone in there, and Abimelech was coming up to go and try to set fire to this bunch of, of uh, wood that they had stacked up against his second tower. And the Bible says that this lady threw out an upper millstone. Now, archaeologists are divided over what upper millstone means. They used to think that it was just a part of a millstone that was brought up into the tower to throw out, because that's what they they figured. Old castles, that's what they would do. They would toss things out of the tower. But now they think it was more than likely, it was kind of like maybe a kitchen utensil. It was a, it, was a, it was a stone that was used for grinding for smaller things, not the gigantic millwork that would be doing all of the stuff for the town. She brought it up there. She saw Abimelech coming. This woman tosses out this stone, breaks his skull. Now it's a mortal wound. He knows he's dying. And he says, I'm dying. And he looks at his armor bearer and says, hey, why don't you kill me so they won't say that I was killed by a woman? Because everybody knows that's the worst thing that could happen to you, right? Are you all with me on that one? How terrible. So you stab me so that I'm not, I'm not killed by a kitchen utensil, okay? And so uh, his, his armor bearer kills him. And then looked at Judges 9 in verse 56. And it's also kind of, it's kind of ironic. It's not ironic because God does things on purpose. But Abimelech killed all of the other sons of Gideon on one stone. And how did he meet his end? By a stone. God killed him with one stone. But look at verse 956. It says, Thus God rendered the wickedness of Abimelech, which he did unto his father, and slain his 70 brethren. And all the evil of the men of Shechem did God render upon their heads. And upon them came the curse of Jotham, the son of Jeroboam. Now, here are some of the things that we can pull from this, okay? Number one, this goes back to God's sovereignty. God is in control. Now, if you were watching this, and let's say you were part of Gideon's uh, family or part of other folks that saw Abimelech do these things, saw the Shechemites do these things, it was three years from the time that they did those evil things until the time when we see that God actually rendered judgment for what they did. 
Many times we as Christians, listen, I want to make sure you understand, we don't have the right to say that's God's judgment. Please, if there is a natural disaster, do not stand up, say you're from Grace Baptist Church, and say this natural disaster is because of the sinners in that town. Because we've got sinners in our town. There's sinners in every town, okay? God doesn't send earthquakes to California because Hollywood is in California, okay? God doesn't send tsunamis to Japan because there's sinners in Japan. And, and so many folks will make the mistake of standing up and saying, well, I think this is God's hand of judgment. The only time we can tell if it's God's hand of judgment is if he tells us it's God's hand of judgment. And it says it here in Judges. But the other side of that is the Bible tells us to give space to the wrath of God. And that, that phrase seems weird to us, give space. What do you mean? Give pl- why, should I, why should I give space or give place to God's wrath? Because many of us will want to step in. Abimelech did wrong. And if Abimelech did wrong to my family, look out. Have you ever heard the term mama bear? I've heard mama bear all the time. And I've heard mama bear used in the, in the situation of, you know, I can go in there and go postal. Postal workers, I apologize that that is now part of the English lexicon. But it is. But I can go in there and go postal on people because they treated my child wrong. They're not going to get away with it. And I'm going to make sure. Vengeance is mine. I will repay Seth the mama bear. No. The Lord. And it is difficult sometimes to wait. But you have to understand God is in control. God's judgment are sure. It may, God's judgment are sure. But maybe it's not going to move as quickly as we want to. And some of you may have been done wrong by a father, by an uncle. You may have been done wrong by a boss. You may have been done wrong by, and you may think, it's not fair that they got to do this and I had to suffer this. Understand, God is on the throne. God is in control. He does know what's going on. He is going to take care of things. Do not fret thyself because of evildoers. You've heard that before. Don't think, well, it's not fair for this and this and this and this. God is in control. The other thing that I want to point out from this And this is, I think, something that we need to realize. It's very, very important. Israelites' problems was not really because of the Midianites. The Israelites' problem is not because of the Canaanites. And this is the story that brings it to the forefront. The Israelites' problem was what's inside. We've got time. If you have your Bibles, turn them over to James chapter 4. James chapter 4. Now, before we read James chapter 4, I want you to think about all of the interpersonal relationships that you have with your boss with your spouse, with your children, with your former spouse, with your former children, with your in-laws, with your former in-laws, with your neighbors, with your teachers, with your students. The interpersonal relationships, not just the good ones. It's easy to think about the good ones and say, well, hey, I'll think about this one. I'll think, but I want you to think about all of the times that you've had issues and you've come home and you've said that, fill in the blank, boss, Wife, child, coworker, whoever. If I have to, if, if I could just get rid of, if the Lord would just move them to, very, very often I've heard preachers talk about, hey, you know what, it's good every once in a while to have a backdoor revival. Do you know what a backdoor revival is? It's supposedly when the division in the church gets so much that the people in the church leave, they go out the back door, and then there's a revival because people have left the church. And there is this idea that the problems that we have are because of other people. 
I know I've thought that most of my life. Why is my teacher getting after me? Why doesn't my teacher like me? Why does my coach not play me? What do they have against me? Why does my coach not play my child? What do they have against them? Why can't my coach coach? Why can't my neighbor be quiet after midnight? Why can't my child... Look at James 4.1, look at it. From whence come wars and fightings among you? Why do you and your wife argue? Well, Brother David, she's Irish. She's Spanish. She's from Gaston. Doesn't matter, we have different excuses. This genetic, they have this and this. Well, why? Well, I argue with my husband because he's so headstrong. From whence come wars, this is not going to be comfortable, but listen. From whence come wars and fightings among you? Come they not hence even of your lusts that war in your members. And our lusts of the flesh are so creative. Can I talk to the married couples for a second? Your lusts of the flesh can get you to argue with your spouse about the same thing. You both will be arguing about the same thing, but you will turn it into an argument because you want the same thing that they want, but you want it your way. And you guys are doing a wonderful job of sitting there like, wow, I don't know what you're talking about, Reverend. But it happens over and over and over. Why do these wars and why do these fightings come? It's not because of your spouse. This really aggravates me because I would love to blame my spouse. I think it would be so much easier if, if everyone would just realize that it's everybody else's fault. But God says it comes because of your lust. Let's keep reading. Ye lust and ye have not. I want attention and I didn't get it. I wanted my way and I didn't get it. I wanted one thing and I didn't get it. And all of a sudden it becomes so, so focused on this one thing. Ye lust and ye have not. Ye kill and desire to have and cannot obtain. Some of the arguments between Christians have been some of the most intense arguments I've ever seen. Going back to Matthew 5, where Jesus Christ says, the Bible says, Doesn't, don't kill, I tell you not to hate. So if you hate, you kill. And James says, you're going around killing. You're, you're leaving a trail of bodies because you want to get stuff done. Um, and you fight in war, and yet you have not because you ask not. Do you know why your wife is not enough for you husbands? Because she's your wife, she's not your God. Do you know why your children can't make you happy all the time? Because they're not your God, they're your children. Do you know why your boss gives you a hard time and causes issues? Because it's not what you're supposed to worship. It can never fulfill what it's supposed to. And if you try to fill yourself on those things, just like Gideon, it may go. Gideon went for 40 years. That's the scary thing. Abimelech went for three, but Gideon went for 40. Living in this sin and allowing these things to happen. And his, his legacy was, was just destroyed there in the children of Israel. And so take a step back and look at it. Uh, verse 3, you ask and receive not because you ask amiss that you may consume it upon your own lusts. Ye adulterers and adulteresses, know ye not that the friendship of the world is enmity with God. Whosoever therefore will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. Do you think the scripture saith in vain the spirit that dwelleth in us lusteth to envy? Now, Honestly, if we stopped right there, this would be a very depressing Wednesday night message. <laughs> uh, I'm going to go home and hate my life. But look at the first few words in the next verse. But 
he gives more grace. See, because here's the thing. God already knows the mistakes that you're going to make. And he gives you the grace right now that you need. And then when you make those mistakes, he gives you more grace. Have you ever gotten to a point with someone where you've just drawn the line and you've said, that's it, no more, no more grace? The Bible tells us it's possible to sin unto death, but it doesn't tell us what it is. And even that can be understood as an act of grace because as you continue to go against the will of God, he brings you home as an act of mercy and grace. But realize Gideon and Abimelech, it's not, that, it's, it's not that we can make our children sin or make our children, it's the, the enemies within us. The problems that we have, and, and if we would get a hold of this, okay, if we would get a hold of the fact that, listen, my stress, it's not because I have a horrible boss. Because great peace have they which love thy law, and terrible bosses shall offend them. Lousy co-workers shall offend them. Terrible parents in their homeroom class shall offend them. Blind referees shall offend them. I got some of you with that one, some of you grin. You know what I'm talking about, blind referees. I got kicked out of a basketball game once because I was called for a face mask. I never played football. This was a basketball game. I was called for a face mask and kicked out of a game. I've seen a lot of bad calls, but I thought, you know what? If this referee is going to use a call from another sport, I think the entire, everybody in this arena can agree he's an idiot. And I tried to get everyone on my side, and it did not work. But whence come wars and fightings? It wasn't the face mask call. I wasn't getting what I wanted. I wasn't getting what David Goforth needed, he thought, that had to happen. And that's what Abimelech, that's what Gideon tells us. Listen, this, this battle is not because of what's around us. The battle is what is in us. And what's the answer? Look down at verse 8. Well, verse 7 and verse 8. Submit yourselves to God. Resist the devil. He'll flee from you. Draw nigh to God. And he'll draw nigh to you. Cleanse your hands, ye sinners. Okay? God's saying, listen, there is effort. But you draw close to God. The effort isn't. Dig down deeper. Okay, I'm going to read a book. I'm going to get along with my boss. I'm going to, I'm going to do better with my... I'm going to... No, it is draw nigh to God. And he'll draw nigh to you. Let's stand to our feet. We'll have a word of prayer. And then we will be dismissed. Thank you for coming tonight. Wonderful crowd on a Wednesday night. They say that rain keeps the Baptists away, but chilly weather doesn't. So that's a, that's a wonderful thing. Thank you for coming. Don't forget those of you that remember Brother Scahill... Uh, be in prayer for them. Amber is getting married. Amber and, and uh, Amber Scahill and Billy Hamrick. Those of you that know those names, blast from the past. That wedding's coming up uh, this weekend. But be in prayer for them. A lot of folks will be traveling. And uh, I know they would appreciate that. Let's have a word of prayer and we'll go. Lord, thank you for loving us. Thank you for loving us even though we allow these things to come in, find root, build up fortresses, and allow us to be, to be prideful. Lord, to expect things from you because of what we have done in our little world. Lord, I pray that you would truly make us humble or truly make us submissive as individuals to you, to your will, to your purposes. Lord, I pray that we would draw an eye to you and enjoy your grace. Thank you for being a God that's in control, that's going to take care of things, and we don't have to. We love you. In the name of Jesus, amen. Amen. Thank you.